0: Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome back. Welcome back to another Bible study. If you have a Bible nearby, open to the Book of Galatians. Last uh, last time, we talked really uh, an an overview of the book, where I was trying to trying to connect the dots. Um connect the dots both within the letter and in the history, the situation into which the letter of Galatians was written. And we know this history from the book of Acts and some of it is inferred from uh, from Paul's own words in the book of Galatians. So uh, I'm not going to go through all of that again, obviously. I wouldn't have time to say anything new if that was the case. So if you didn't hear the last one, I encourage you to get that get a hold of that. But, you know, there will be some, some review, some overlap from the last time. Um, but welcome again. I hope that you're ready to hear from the Lord. I hope that you're excited to dive in and see what He has to say to us. And God's Word is always available and always speaking. The question is not whether or not He is speaking. The question is what He, he is saying And whether our hearts are ready to receive it. So if you're listening to this and it's just become rut and routine, it might be a good idea to take a minute and quiet your heart and say, where is it? Lord, am I ready to receive what you have to say to me? That's a good practice to have. And I don't always remember that. I read the Bible every day except the days when I don't. But I don't always stop to say, Lord, would you soften my heart, make my heart receptive to what you have to say to me? My prayer for you and I, for all of us, is that we would have receptive hearts. That is the main problem in Scripture for humanity, is that our hearts are hard and rebellious and stubborn. Our hearts want to be in charge, to be independent, to not have somebody over us. It is the soft heart, the one that knows that we're weak and broken and actually in need of somebody above us to help us. It is that heart that will receive what the Lord has to say and that will benefit from it. So, enough about that and that I talk about every time. Let's get into Galatians. As I mentioned last time, this is the hottest letter in the New Testament. Paul, is, Paul blows a gasket and why does he blow a gasket? Well, it's because people have come along and they've taken the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and have twisted it so that the good news is no longer truly that good. What has happened is Paul has been radically saved, radically transformed by the grace of God after he found himself to be God's enemy. He's been liberated by the Spirit of God after having come from the Jewish system as a Pharisee, following the Torah to the letter. And he's seen that that is not how one becomes right with God, but rather it is through faith in Christ that a person is right with God. That's how it's always been. That's how it was intended with Abraham, who was to then be a blessing to all the nations around him, his children, his descendants, the people of Israel, the people of God. God's intention for them was that they should bless the nations around them. And what happens after Paul plants and nurtures some churches is others come in behind him who are the offspring of Abraham who then start to take away the blessing, the gift that God has for them the gift of faith in Christ and the freedom that that brings. And they begin to replace that with the enslavement to law that was part of the Jewish system in the past. And Paul blows a gasket because he says, I've been there. I've done the law. It doesn't work. It doesn't make a person right with God. It's only faith in Christ that does that. So he blows a gasket. We're not actually going to get to the part where it blows today. But that's what essentially happens and the book is essentially about this question of what makes makes a human being right with God? Just how is it that our relationship with God is restored? Is it... Belief in Jesus plus something else, like observing ordinances in the law? Or is it just simply faith in Jesus? That's the main question that he's at. And the follow-up question after that is, what is the relationship then of Torah, of the old covenant, to the new And what does all this mean when we answer that question? What does it mean for our lives? So that's essentially a summary of the book of Galatians. We're going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and go through that this time. So Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And it's only five verses. I could have been ambitious and tried to go further, but I think there's enough here to occupy us for a few minutes this morning. So Paul begins with a standard greeting of a letter of his time. It, the standard way a letter is written is not uh, to whom it may concern, dear sirs or madam. Um, the standard greeting in his time is who it's from, this person in their title, uh, then uh, who it is to, and then some kind of, some kind of greeting. Peace, blessing, uh, that sort of thing. And then and then they get into whatever the contents of the letter are. So this is pretty standard, pretty typical of Paul's time. What's interesting about this is, well, the first thing to note is it says Paul, an apostle. Apostle means a person who is sent, a sent one. And in the book of Ephesians, talk, uh, Paul talks about the this being a gift. Apostleship is a gift, a person who... Goes out and sort of pioneers uh, pioneers Christian movements. Uh, Of course, it's the Lord who's really doing it, but somebody who is sent by the Lord out to pioneer a new movement where there isn't any. But there's also this office of apostle that refers to people who had personal encounters with the risen Lord Jesus Christ who learned directly from Him after He had been raised from the dead. And it's important that it was after He was raised from the dead. Because the disciples, the twelve, they did not get it before He died. They did not understand His teaching. And after He was raised from the dead, just the mere fact that He was raised from the dead, it didn't really sink in. They could have gone in a lot of different places, come to a lot of different conclusions if Jesus just said, hey, I'm back, see ya. But we know that Jesus, after he was raised from the dead, spent 40 days with his original 12 disciples, teaching them, helping them to understand what his life and his death and his resurrection have meant. So there were only 11 at that point, right, because Judas had had hanged himself. So, uh, Paul, how is it that Paul is an apostle? Well, he's going to get to this later on in, in Galatians, but Paul also is an apostle, not just by gift, but he holds this office because, well, let's see, he says it right here. Not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul is an apostle, Because he had a personal encounter with Jesus. He was taught personally by Jesus after he was raised from the dead. That gives him a certain kind of authority. And this is going to come into play throughout the rest of chapter 1. Because it's Paul's authority that has come under fire. And that's one of the reasons why he writes this letter is other people from Jerusalem had come to these Galatian churches and said, you know, we actually came from Jerusalem where Jesus' ministry uh, really started, His resurrection ministry really started, and where His original disciples are from. You know, and they are true apostles because they lived with the Lord. So Paul has, has this need to show his credibility, you might say. So it's Paul an apostle that's pretty standard of Paul's, of Paul's letters. But then he says, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. It's very, very important for Paul. Very important. That his readers know that Paul himself was not commissioned by a committee. He wasn't taught and then sent out by some individual or group of people who had heard from someone else who had heard from someone else. But Paul's commission was sourced in Jesus Christ himself. So he has, it's it's literally, I'm on a mission from God. God literally spoke to me and told me this. I don't have that kind of authority, by the way. Just so you know. There's no pastor who has that kind of authority. Not today, at least. I have not, uh, God has not, Jesus has not appeared to me in physical form and and taught me. I learn from people who learn from people who learn from people who learn from people. And of course, the Lord speaks to me throughout my life, speaks to me in his word. We have wonderful times of prayer, but that is not the same thing as what Paul is talking about. Can you imagine... Jesus appearing to you and saying, this is the meaning of my human life and ministry, my death and my resurrection. And here are the implications. Here has been the plan that the Father and I have had since, all of crea- since before creation began. That's what Paul had. So this is a foreshadowing of how Paul is going to defend his credibility as an apostle. Moving right along to the, to the churches of Galatia, grace, and, uh, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now grace and peace, is a, is, are, those are some pretty standard, um, pretty standard greetings with the exception of grace. There's, there's a particular Christian nuance to that. We'll get into that at another time. Um, But notice how he says, God our Father and the Lord Jesus. He just said that in verse 1. Paul an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Here he says, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how Paul is pairing these two together. It's not enough to just say Jesus. It's not enough to just say God the Father. He pairs them together. If people come to you and say that this idea of the Trinity, that there's plurality in God is is a later manifestation of theologians sort of contemplating their navel and depriving themselves of food out in the desert, don't believe them. The idea of plurality in God is right here in one of the earliest documents that we have from the New Testament times from the earliest documents from an eyewitness to Jesus resurrection. There is an equating of God the Father of all and Jesus the man from Nazareth. It's always been there. And there are implications to the fact that there's plurality in God but we don't have time to get into those <laughs> right now. Maybe another time we'll, we'll do something that's specifically on the Trinity and why it matters. If you're really interested in this, I would highly recommend to you a book called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. He goes through in a little bit more depth. And by the way, it's, it's not an intimidating read. It's under 200 pages. It's right there at average person level. You don't have to have taken any classes or anything To get what Reeves is talking about. So, there, shameless plug for a book that I didn't write. So, uh, Mr. Reeves, if you ever, if someone ever says you heard it here, you heard it here. Uh, But anyway, moving right along. We have plurality in God acknowledged from the beginning, but that's a side point. We're going to leave that aside. Here's what I want to point out grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Okay, there are two things I want to point out. Well, there's several things to point out, but two things I want to pair together in here. He says that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Do you know, do you recognize that you have sins? Do you know and do you recognize that the current age we live in is an evil age? If you don't, let's talk about it for a minute. This idea of sin has kind of fallen on hard times, though it is, it is sort of making a comeback as a, as a category. Sin does not simply refer to bad things that we do. Of course it does. Of course it refers to bad things that people do to one another and to themselves and to all of the creation. It refers to a rebellion against God. That also is sin. But it's more than just sin. Of course, you know, all of us have told a white lie. All of us have sinned. If we, if we categorize it as moral evil, bad things that we do, we should all be able to acknowledge like, yes, I have not lived a perfect life. In fact, I still don't. And if you need an admission from a pastor, I still sin. You know, I, I love my family. I love those people who are close to me. But if you ask any of them, they're not going to say, my husband, my dad, is a saint. He, he does not sin. A little more difficult to convince is the idea that the present age is evil. And what Paul is referring to, he's not saying everything that happens is evil. He's not saying that the material world, like physical stuff, is evil. He's not saying that the that the the overall um, mass of humanity is just one warped evil that we need to fight or something like that. What he's saying is that this age is bent and twisted, and we are a part of that age right now. We ourselves are bent and twisted. Have you ever noticed? Have you ever noticed in yourself, have you ever been shocked by something you've done and you've thought, I didn't know I was capable of that? I didn't know I could do that. Only bad people do that. Have you ever watched a boxing match and cheered when somebody got knocked down? Have you ever seen people on the other side of the political aisle? sad when they lose, and felt good about it. We're twisted. Have you ever seen somebody who has more needs than you and not done something about that? Have you ever lived somewhere where you have extra room and somebody needs a place to stay and you don't offer it to them? Are there things you have that you don't need that you withhold from people you know need them? Okay, let's take it a step further. When you think, what occupies your thoughts? What percentage of your time is spent pursuing your own happiness versus the happiness of someone else? How much of your life, your time, your energy, both physical and mental and emotional, is given for the sake of someone other than yourself? How much of that is happening? Now, if you're a parent of young children, you might say, hey, I'm doing pretty good. (laughs) but that's because your children have forced that out of you. If you didn't have young kids, what happens when they get old enough to go to school or you get to go back to work or you have a little more freedom? What happens? Do you continuously just, just give your life away to your jobs, your co-workers, to your friends? Are you really living for somebody else all the time? What percentage of your time is actually given to someone other than yourself? Okay, so you, I, I'm, I'm just... I'm putting a finer and finer and finer point on it to show that we are all participants in the bending, the twisting of this age. We are twisted. Now I'm going to take it another step further and talk about how things are not merely twisted. We're not merely like actively promoting ourselves and trying to, uh, trying to make life better for ourselves at the expense of someone else. It's not only that. Have you noticed that after you reach a certain age, your body starts to hurt more than it used to? Things start breaking down. You need more rest than you used to. It takes longer for your body to heal from that injury. Have you noticed that when you learn things, or things that you have learned in the past, You now have forgotten. You know, uh, many of the exams that I took during my undergrad, I probably could not pass right now. There is a breakdown happening, a decay in this age, a decay of our physical bodies, a decay of our minds, and of course, as I had said before, there's a moral decay. This present age is passing away. It is twisted. It is evil. It is broken. And it is passing away and we along with it. Do you recognize that? I have great concern for many of our brothers and sisters. Some of you may be listening to this. I have grave concern that many of us are really trying to plant our flag in this age and create a sort of Eden on earth. Or we think that God's plan was to keep his people here to restore creation for him so that at some point, if Jesus does come back, everybody will have wanted him to come back because we've just so improved the world. As though this age actually isn't broken, isn't evil, isn't twisted, or that we somehow could untwist it ourselves. No, this age is broken and twisted. We should long to be released from it as Paul says in Romans 8. The whole creation groans. Longing for the day when Christ will be revealed. He talks about the redemption of our bodies. Where there's some kind of permanence. The Bible talks about us being strangers and aliens here in this world. Are you getting comfortable here with things being twisted and broken? Or do you feel that brokenness and long for deliverance? This is what Paul is talking about. Jesus came to deliver us from sin and this present evil age. Do you believe that? Do you long for that? Do you recognize that you need to be delivered from that? Okay, that's the first thing. Sin and evil age. Second point is that Jesus came to deliver us. This is something he does. We do not deliver ourselves. The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us. This is nothing less than the gospel itself. Jesus came and gave himself to deliver us from this present evil age. Why did he do such a thing? Because we cannot deliver ourselves. God's known this, he's always known it, and Paul's really going to get into it in this letter. Remember the main point of the letter is, is it Jesus plus something else, or just Jesus? It's Jesus, he came, he gave, in order that he might deliver us from this present evil age. This is the God that we worship, the one who gives his own life. And Paul says, for our sins, it's because sin. Sin is what made it so that he was required to give his life. That's how serious sin is. There wasn't another way. There wasn't a plan B. If there had been another way, an easier way, God himself would have taken it. He has more wisdom than you or I do. But this is what he had to do. He had to give himself in order to deliver us because he loves us. That's why he did it. God doesn't just do things because they're necessary. He does things because he is full. His heart is full. Is full of feeling and desire and love for you and I. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus gave. He wants He loves us. He hates to see us languishing in this present twisted evil age and he longs to deliver us. Notice this last thing. I'm running out of time here. This is according to the will of our God and Father. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't an accident that Jesus came and died. Gave his life. This was according to his own will. God desired it. The Lord himself so longs for and desires us, us sinners, us people who are contributing to the corruption and twisting of this age. See, God did not create a twisted and corrupted world. God created one that was innocent, It was free of all corruption. And we are the ones who introduced that corruption into his good world. We broke the world. We broke the universe. So that now all things are moving toward decay. It's our fault. And God, because he is so gracious and so loving, didn't say, well, you broke it, you fix it. He didn't say, well, you broke it. You're going to get what you deserve. No. He says, my plan is that when they break it, I myself will fix it. I myself will make a way for them to come back to me. I myself will give my very own life for their sake. I myself, I will give my dear and only son whom I love, to rescue them, to deliver them, to pull them out of the pit that they dug for themselves. That's the God that Paul encounters. That's the God that Paul knows. That's the Jesus that we long for. Do you long for him? Do you long to know this Jesus, to love him? See, Paul doesn't end there. (coughs) This is the last thing. According to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Do you not want to give him the glory? If this is true, let's just say for a minute that this is true, that God is so good that he says, even when you screw everything up, I myself, I will pay for all the damage. I will take it all into myself. You don't have to pay for any of it. I'm going to take care of it and I'm going to deliver you and I'm going to rescue you. And as Paul says in Ephesians, I'm not only going to deliver you and rescue you, I'm going to give you all the riches that I have and I'm going to show you forever and ever for all the ages to come just how great my kindness is towards you. Is that not good news? Let's just say that's true. Should we not be rejoicing? Should this God not deserve all the glory? Of course he should. So if you're hearing this, if you're hearing this, you may be in your hearts right now rejoicing and saying, man, I just want to, I just want to praise the Lord right now. I want to say thank you. You are great. Some of you might be saying, Josh, you sound really excited. I wish that I had that level of excitement. Well, my, my response to you is, you could have it. Go to Jesus. Say, I want that. I want to I know this anew. I want to know this in a fresh and a new way. I want you to fill me with your spirit so that I remember who you are and I encounter you in a real way. And there may be some of you hearing this who... Maybe your hearts are a little cold and a little hard. Maybe you're saying, Josh, yeah, you're excited, and that's fine. But I just can't find myself believing this. You say if this is true, and I follow you, if it's true. But I just don't, I just don't know if it's true. I don't know if I can make myself believe that. I don't know if I can give myself that kind of hope, because if it isn't true, I will be so disappointed. I want you to believe in Jesus. I want you to believe. And I beg you to believe in Jesus, to believe that this is true. But I can't make you. I can't make you. And here's the crazy thing. You can't make yourself either. But the mere fact that you're following me what I'm saying, what Paul is saying, that you're still listening shows that God is already at work in you. And He Himself will give you the faith to believe that this is true. So keep pursuing. Keep pressing in. Keep listening. Keep reading the Scriptures. Talk to Jesus. And tell Him exactly how you feel. Say, I... I don't know if I can believe this. It sounds like a wonderful thing that other people like and have found to believe, but I just can't do it. Keep coming to Him. Keep pursuing. For all of us, may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be showered upon you Because in Paul's words, he gave himself for our sins. It was our sin that required him to give himself. But he did it willingly, freely. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the decay, the pain, the anguish, the sorrow Of this present evil age. His great love motivates and moves him to do so. Come to him today. Say, I want to receive that love. God bless you guys.